Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Throughout her life, Iris was often asked who influenced her writing and which authors were of most importance to her. Of course, there was some variability in her answers, but she always highlighted the importance of the 19th century novel as the apogee of fiction writing, and one that we should try and reformulate or at least reinvigorate for the 20th. Dickens, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, James, all were key figures in her pantheon of the greats. But she also highlighted the importance of Jane Austen, her admiration for George Eliot, and indeed early in her career, the darling, dangerous woman, Virginia Woolf. As Morris Cranston in The Bookman uh, said, which is reproduced on the back of the Triad Panther edition of An Unofficial Rose, she belongs to the company of George Eliot, Jane Austen and Virginia Woolf, which is a fascinating uh, thing to consider and something that we are going to be considering in depth on this podcast. Joining me today to discuss these three influences are three favourite guests of the podcast, experts on these authors and their links to Murdoch's work and, of course, have written widely on Murdoch th uh, throughout their careers. Uh, so for Jane Austen, I'm delighted to um, have the returning Gillian Dooley. Hello, Gillian. Hello, hello. Thanks for coming back on. Gillian is Honorary Associate Professor in English Literature at uh, Flinders University in Australia. As I'm sure you are all well aware, she's the editor of From a Tiny Corner in the House of Fiction, Conversations with Iris Murdoch, as well as the more recent Listening to Iris Murdoch, Music, Sounds and Silences, recently published with Palgrave. She's also a renowned um, expert on Austin and is one of the leading experts on Austin's connections with music, which I'm sure will come up a little bit later on. So it's great to have her back on. Also with Thank us you. is Jan Skinner. Hello, Jan. Hello, Miles. Uh, Jan, of course, has been on talking about uh, Murdoch and Adolescence, Murdoch and Childhood Reading and, um, and much else besides. She's formerly a tutor at Oxford's Continuing Education Department, and she's published work on the connections between George Eliot and Murdoch. And indeed, a link to that fascinating essay is in the description box uh, below for this podcast. So do please um, read that. Indeed, I'm going to put up uh, material for each of these uh, speakers uh, in the description box below. And finally, talking about uh, primarily Virginia Woolf, is uh, the co-director of the Research Centre at Chichester, Francis White. Hello, Francis. Hello, Miles. Francis is the author of the forthcoming monograph, Iris Murdoch and Remorse, which is coming uh, soon with Palgrave, as well as the co-edited collection, Iris Murdoch and the Literary Imagination. Um, her work on uh, Murdoch and Virginia Woolf can be found in the collection Iris Murdoch Connected, uh, which was published by the University of Tennessee Press uh, a few years ago. Again, links to that in the description. So I think it's probably best if we go through chronologically. So Gillian, let's start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about Murdoch's engagement with Austin? Um, yes, well, uh, Murdoch always, uh, you know, cited or mentioned Jane Austen as, as one of her great, you know, one of her sort of he literary heroes. Mm. Uh, Mr. Knightley was her her one of her favourite fictional characters, the other being Achilles in um, in um, the Iliad. Um, so uh, she didn't she never explained what that meant, you know, why those two. But she she said that a couple of times, I think, that, um, that Mr. Knightley and Achilles were her favourite fictional characters. Um, but. Um, uh, and uh, and she, and she you know as as uh, she she spoke so much so often about the preeminence as miles said of the of the great tradition of the 19th century novel and how um you know there's there's somewhere where she says um you know the the um the um 
the main thing about the 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 most obvious difference between the 19th century novels and 20th century novels is that 19th century novel 19th century ones are better mm. so she had um um and uh, you know some some years ago i wrote an article called iris murdoch in the shadow of the precursor a fairly honorable defeat question mark um so um i i wondered in that essay whether the the anxiety of influence wasn't it wasn't in some way didn't some in some way hamper her I, I i i don't think i would say that now i think she dealt with the that anxiety of influence quite well but i mean quite a lot of people were were saying that sort of thing um i've got lot, quite a lot of quotes in that article from other other scholars saying you know, she she let she let that that um, awe of those the nineteenth century novels affect her too much, um, and it sort of dampened her. You know what she was really good at, which was sort of creative create creating really interesting um, plots and you know, animating characters within those plots and, you know, the, the, all the wonderful things she's so good at. And I, and I, I think now I would, I would not really want to say that there was an anxiety of influence. I think there was a, there was a sort of a, um, a veneration of those, of those, um, of those novelists, an admiration. Um, what, what, how, whether there's active influence is another big question. I mean, I think it's pretty hard to say that there's any novelist writing in the English language or perhaps some others as well who are who were not influenced by Jane Austen. Um, and, um, um, and and of course there there've been there've been several articles comparing Austen with um with with Murdoch's work, um, there's one that I wrote. There's a wonderful one that Francis wrote, um, and there's also a, a very very good one by um, Nick Turner um, called "It Was Badly Done Indeed, Bradley," um, which I'm sure both Austen and Murdoch readers will 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 understand the the reference there. Um, so so what what did Murdoch take from Austen? Uh, she she would have read Austen, you know, from as soon as she, she was reading, probably, you know, from from the, her early teens, as we all did. Um, the possibilities in the novel, the 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 possi the the, uh, the subtlety of Austen. I mean, I've just reread Mansfield Park, and I, I don't know how many times I've read it now, probably twenty, and it's still new. And I get the same thing with Murdoch. So. I, I'm, I'm a bit, uh, um, I'm in a bit of a difficulty here because I'm not sure that I can say this is the way that Jane Austen influenced Iris Murdoch. I would say they are both incredibly wonderful, skilled novelists, very with great subtlety of their art, but they're they're very different um, in many ways um, because of the. The, the development of the of the art form from in those you know 150 200 years between there when they were writing i wonder whether there's something <laughs> about the the observational technique that Aust that austin has as a as, as a 
as a, a view of relationships and that and Murdoch is doing something slightly similar in, in her work. Yes, sure, yes. Um, but whether it's something that's unique to, you know, that she uniquely got from, from Austin, that's that's what I what I sort of sure. step back from saying. Um yeah, and 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 but you know, sometimes I think so so the the article I wrote, you know, probably you know, to 25, 30 years ago was comparing Mansfield Park with a fairly honorable defeat and mm. looking at the 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 sort of figures, the figure the central figure of a of a passive uh, um, protagonist, or not really a protagonist at all, um, Talis in Fairly Honourable Defeat and Fanny in um, Mansfield Park, and seeing how how each of them dealt with that that figure, um, and um, um, and uh, you know created a world around that that those those figures which to which they react, um, but in a in a sort of principled way, didn't you know remain remain sort of passive. Francis, would you like to uh, build on what um, Gillian's just said there? Well, I'm quite interested in this because somebody said very recently on the Iris Murdoch Facebook page that they couldn't see much connection between Iris Murdoch and Jane Austen, and yet she drops little hints of Austen into many, many of her novels. And I've been oh, fascinated cool. by how differently each of the three of us, Gillian, Nick and myself, have approached the question of comparing them. Nick, as Gillian alluded to, looks at the novel Emma against the novel The Black Prince and compares the characters of Emma and Bradley Pearson she herself was looking more at Mansfield Park and a fairly honourable defeat and looking at Fanny and Talis as figures of good and figures of um, constrained good and passivity. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating essay, that. And I looked at partly Northanger Abbey and Nuns and Soldiers and also at Sense and Sensibility in the book and the Brotherhood. There are close connections there. But the other thing that interested me recently was we've been transcribing um, some talks that Iris and John gave at Tulane back in the 1980s. And they both talk about Jane Austen in that. And John points out, reading a passage from Persuasion, the narrative technique by which Austen goes into Anne Elliot's head and gives us a flavor of how she's thinking and then pans out as it were and watches her walking along the street. And I think we haven't done enough research into this yet, but I think you can see fascinating parallels of this narrative voice in Murdoch particularly in the book of the brotherhood where you're suddenly in rose kirtland's head for quite a while mm, and then yeah. again it pans out and you're distanced from her and i think this shifting register of voice is something that murdoch is learning or has learned from from austin uh, yes I, I i think definitely um she learned that from austin but um but so did surely um other you know so it's 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 that that free and direct discourse, or whatever you want to call it, um, is is just so pervasive in in twentieth century fiction that um, I I would sort of be cautious of saying that is a one direct influence from Austen to Murdoch, but perhaps I'm being just too. Um, I, I mean, I think it's fruitful to compare them. I think it's absolutely interesting and fruitful to compare the two novelists. Um, to compare and perhaps contrast them, but um, yes. So it's just that it's just whether you can say, well, that's a direct influence of Austen mm. because she's she's had 
she's had uh well apart from Elliot and Wolf and you know she's had Proust and 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 you know all these other and all the, the Russians you know as well um to to um to draw on um so yeah, that, that question about direct lineage is, is is a very difficult one. I think maybe if, if we were talking about Murdoch and Bowen, it might be slightly easier because there, I think, you know, the with Murdoch's Irish novels, I think you can draw direct direct links there. Um, but as you say, I think it's it's the it's the chronology as well, Gillian, isn't it? They're, they're so far apart in time and, and there are other novelists who have been influenced by Austin that then go on and influence Murdoch. Jan, can I, I call on you to talk a little bit about um, Elliot? Obviously, we went into these kind of the, the major mid-period um, large Victorian novels. Um, mm. I know you've written about Murdoch and um, the influence of Daniel Deronda, but could you talk a little bit about Murdoch's kind of um, impression of Elliot? Because I don't think she was in, as enamoured with Elliot as she was of Austin, was she? Probably not. Um, hard to say. I'm just thinking about the lineage point you made there, because um, in a way, if we start with Jane Austen and think George Eliot was born just two years after, uh, George Eliot was born just two years after Jane Austen died, and she died just um, uh, two years before uh, Virginia Woolf was born. Oh. Um, George Eliot was born exactly 100 years before Iris Murdoch. You know, you can trace a line through, I think. And they all, I mean, after Jane Austen, all the other writers talked about the, the, the four uh, mothers, if you like. Um, George Henry Lewis, who was George Eliot's life partner, said that Jane Austen was the greatest artist that has ever written. Mm. I think he said that before George Eliot wrote her novels. Um, uh, but he said to read one of her books is like an actual experience of life. You know the people as if you had lived with them and you feel something of personal affection for them. So, you know, if we're starting with Jane Austen and going through to George Eliot, we can see that the, 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 the influence builds and um, George Eliot and, and, and George Henry Lewis, her life partner, used to read Jane Austen books aloud to each other in the evenings. They read through, you know, all, all, all six novels. Um, when, when we come to Virginia Woolf, her father wrote about George Eliot, uh, Leslie Stephen. The Leslie Stephen Lecture, which is the Cambridge Biennial Lecture, um, Iris Murdoch was only the second woman to give that Leslie Stephen lecture, which was in, in memory of Virginia Woolf's father. Mm. Um, and um, Rosemary Ashton, the great George Eliot scholar, was a, 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 a more recent present presenter of the of the Leslie Stephen lecture. So I feel there's lots of interconnections and, and tracings of influences through. Um, I think that George Eliot probably felt more like a competitor to Iris Murdoch in a way, in that she, Iris Murdoch was trying to write the sort of novel that she greatly admired um, in the, in the um, Victorian tradition. Although, of course, actually most of, the, most of George Eliot's novels are not set in the Victorian age. It's only Daniel Deronda is the only one that is actually mm. about her contemporary time. But um, I think that 
Iris Murdoch mostly took from George Eliot how to write moral dilemmas, how to give the complexity of characters who are faced with choices. And um, I think that they had a lot in common in terms of the moral values they were looking to reinforce. Um, George Eliot, as a, a limited determinist, very influenced by positivist thinking, um, wanted her heroines to defeat egoism and to unself, just in the same way that Murdoch wants her characters to attend to reality so that they can be less selfish and defeat the ego. And I think because they had so much in common, in a way there's a there's a tension between the the the, the ultimate um, freedom that they give their characters. Murdoch is very, very keen, isn't she, that the ideal is characters um, free characters fit, uh, you know, to, 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 is it what, characters fit for a free, free characters fit, what's a Henry James quote? House fit for free characters to live in. That's it, yes. Um, and her concept of attention and attending to reality as being the way to choose the good, I suspect, and I, I, I've just, been thinking about this is in conflict with, or at least challenges, George Eliot's um, most famous quotation, I think, from Middlemarch. Let's read it quickly, which is about, um, I mean, it's about Dorothea choosing and 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 looking to to make correct choices about the disastrous marriage she's made. Eliot says, if we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat, and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the quickest of us walk about well wadded with stupidity. So I wonder how far Murdoch is saying, attend, attend, look to reality and you'll get it right. And George Eliot is saying, no, that, that you know that, that's not going to work. It would, it would. I think someone actually once described that as a definition of schizophrenia. Her, her vision of what what really attending to reality would mean. So, sorry, those are just quick initial thoughts on on Murdoch and George Eliot. No, no that's fine. Thank you. I, I I wonder, Jan, whether there's also something to be said for that the the idea of the, uh, the the climactic scene as well or may, maybe the kind of um, major major scenes of, of of action and i wonder i was thinking about the ending of the mill on the floss and the flood and one when whether this is something also that murdoch does quite well and whether we see any similarities or connections between these the, these kinds of moments yes i mean are you suggesting that they both go in for a bit of melodrama or Possibly, possibly. <laughs> I'm also, but, but also, I, I guess that for, for both of for both Elliot and for Murdoch, they're kind of known for these kind of the, these moments of of tension, or when sort of both both of tension between characters, and but also when when nature sort of 
breaks through yes. and creates action itself. And I, I, I yeah, I, I know well, again, I've... I think it's difficult from what Gillian was saying about you know actually saying, well, this is a direct link, but maybe mm. there's something in the mix. Yeah, I, I think what uh, what Murdoch and Elliot both committed themselves to was um, not allowing their characters to evade the consequences of their actions. Sure. Um, and for George Eliot, that was very much resulting from her empirical beliefs about the material world, the sort of post-Darwinian thinking she had about um, the web of the world and the organic structure and how you you, you couldn't escape your heredity, your physiology, etc. Mm. Um, for Murdoch, it's what, what? What is it for Murdoch? Why, why is she so keen that we should we should not be able to avoid what we have set in train? Because I, I'm not sure how contingency in Murdoch maps with George Eliot. I think there's a tension. I think there's a conflict there as well. But I mean, it's all. It, it's it's something that perhaps we can um, we we can discuss a little bit later on in the podcast because I think once mm. we've heard from Francis talking about mm. then maybe we can start to bring some of these threads together and, and make um, well maybe we won't be able to make a, a, a full picture of the the, the links but uh, uh, certainly it'll it'll give um, our listeners a, a lot of uh, food for thought. So Francis, um, do you want to pick up on what Jan's been saying there and also make some um, links to with the modern period? Yeah, I think that'd be really important. I want to look at what Murdoch herself said about these writers, really, because she said in an interview, which is in Gillian's wonderful book, Tiny Corner of the House of Fiction, I would like to think that something of the spirit of Jane Austen, whose work I love dearly, had entered into my work. And Jane Austen is a given, an object of love for both her and for John Bailey. It's just accepted. Mm. George Eliot is respected and admired. But she says, George Eliot is not somebody who touches my heart terribly, although one must admire her. She was driven to develop an intellectual vision through reaction to her situation as a woman. So it's a much more distanced appraisal of Eliot. It's not this sort of taking her to her heart that it is Jane Austen. And I think one of the key things is comedy. Murdoch was very clear that the novel was comedic form and that we are all figures of comedy. And as Gillian was saying, you read Jane Austen again, it's fresh every time, you laugh afresh every time. Same with Murdoch, when you reread Murdoch, you laugh again, even the dark novels, there's so much humor in them, so much comedy. And she actually wrote to the Lebovitzes in America, I've just finished rereading M Middlemarch, how super it is. One forgets the funniness of serious writers sooner than anything else. And I love Virginia Woolf dearly, very dearly, but I wouldn't say I ever laugh reading her. And that may be an element that Murdoch finds missing in Virginia Woolf. But I think also Jane, um, Gillian alluded to the anxiety of influence and we see it most strongly in Murdoch. And I would make the claim that the foremost female writer of maybe even writer altogether of the first half of the 20th century in Britain was Virginia Woolf and that Murdoch is the foremost writer of the second half of the 20th century which is a strong claim but I will argue that case. So I want to look at how this affected um, Murdoch's feelings about Woolf and how that changed over her life and how she dealt with it. She mistrusted Bloomsbury greatly, in fact the whole concept of Bloomsbury has been much debated and um, contested recently, but she mistrusted what she saw as the, the, the sort of um, 
manifesto of art for art's sake. And she says the work of great artists such as Jane Austen and George Eliot shows up art for art's sake as a flimsy, frivolous doctrine. Art is for life's sake or else it is worthless. And that's key to her mistrust. But she also mistrusted Wolfe in particular and distances herself. She says in an interview, I personally feel much closer to Dickens and Dostoevsky than I do to James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. So she's actually sort of setting out, I'm on this side, not on that side. As a young woman, she was affected by Woolf. She said to Frank Thompson in 41, I've been reading Virginia Woolf, The Darling Dangerous Woman, and I'm in a state of extremely nervous self-consciousness the most selfish of all states to be in. And she tells Philippa Foote a year later, don't read Virginia Woolf. But then in the early eighties, she and John went to a conference in Cambridge on Woolf and she had to reread Woolf to take part in the conference. He was taking a minor part, but she wanted to be well enough informed to you know, hold her own in the conversations and discussions and things. And she wrote to Bridget Brophy just after it, it's super to wake up in the morning and realize I don't have to read a Virginia Woolf novel today. I'm prepared <laughs> to admire some of the stuff, but do not like either it or her. And to Naomi Lebovitz again, she wrote, I admire her, but I can't feel at home. Of course, in some sense, she's a marvellous writer and original, but I can't be very interested in her thoughts. And I want to return to that fact of the Cambridge Conference in 82 a little bit later. First, I think there are a lot of biographical parallels which have also been made with George Eliot at, at times. Then both Wolfe and Murdoch married after being engaged to other people relatively late. And they married men who facilitated a mode of living that had freed up their wives to write. And both they became better known than their husbands, Leonard Wolfe and John Bailey, although they too were writers of distinction. Both marriages were childless and both of them conducted various extramarital relationships as well, which the men seemed to cope with. They both share a great love of water, which is of great significance in their fiction. And they are united by their writerly celebrations of London. They have been famously with Dickens, uh, the, the great literary, and I suppose Ian Sinclair as well, the great writers of London. But I'm interested in the intellectual parallels between them, between them as minds, as working artists, of writers of fiction, criticism, and philosophical polemic. They both wrote compulsively and dedicated much time and energy to correspondence and had a strong relationship with their readers. And they're ambitious to succeed as writers. They both reject art that has a palpable design upon the reader, and they're wary of the intrusion of philosophy into fiction. But despite this resistance, they both produce novels which demand philosophically orientated critical commentary because both are committedly intellectual writers who value the life of the mind, inquiry into what life is about and how it should be lived. So looking at the reasons for distancing herself from Wolf and the anxiety of influence, she self-identifies apart from Jane Austen and George Eliot primarily with the male line of novelists and seems to have a general refusal to think back through our mothers as Virginia, as Wolf insists that women writers do. And she went on the attack in her very, very first book of all, Such a Romantic Rationalist, published in 1953, wouldn't, wouldn't appear to be about Wolf at all, but she comes in quite a bit. And she mistrusts, in this book, she says that she mistrusts modernism as the readiness simply to record the flux of reality or to become absorbed in sporting with language itself. And I could say more about that, but I think I'll move on because there's too much detail here, really. But we see this inner compulsion to deal with Wolf at this early stage in her career, to defuse her influence, depose her literary position. It's, it's quite a strong statement. And you see the same attitude in later work. You could look at metaphysics as a guide to morals and find the same kind of comments that the impressionistic stream of consciousness novel flows 
it may, see, it may seem to vanish objects and scenes dissolve into words. So she's very suspicious of the way that not just Wolf, but also James Joyce and people write. And this is odd to me because Wolf um, Murdoch is very concerned about what human consciousness is about. It's part of our moral life, our, our morality exists in our consciousness or our consciousness is, is how we make moral decisions and deal with moral dilemmas and things. And in The Black Prince, she tries to describe what she calls that weird stuff, human consciousness. And this is the description she gives. External objects, darty memories, warm fantasies, other minds, guilt, fear, hesitation, lies, glee, doles, breathtaking pains, a thousand things which words can only fumble at, coexist, many fused together in a single unit of consciousness. And I think that's a very pithy encapsulation of the units of consciousness that Wolf creates in her characters, but that obviously wasn't apparent to Murdoch. And I think there are very, very many reasons for why she was so rejecting and suspicious. One is that Wolf's scholarship has grown exponentially in range and subtlety in the last 20, 30 years, and she didn't have access to that, obviously. And she, she didn't really read um, criticism of Wolf anyway, but it has changed, and the views of Wolf have changed very much this century, mm -hmm. and her ethics and her spirituality are seen much more. But also, John Bailey was a huge influence, really. And if you look at The Power of Delight, his huge book of essays, and look at the comments throughout that, Jane Austen is just accepted, revered, reverenced, loved. George Eliot is admired at a slightly more distance. And Wolfe is very, very much dismissed by him. He uses quite diminishing language about her work. A philosophy of subjectiveness and helplessness. Feeble, uncertain, shrill, self-absorbed. And this is a subliminal undermining, drip feeding into Murdoch's mind as they talk. He says that Wolfe appeals to the young. She's a being without a sense of moral order. And worst of all, he says that for Wolfe, seeing itself was a form of egoism. And as morality and vision are of central importance to Murdoch, and she sees egoism as something to over overcome by a process of unselfing, that that would put her off Wolf completely. And yet Wolf also has written that she rates unegoism as among the prime human virtues. And if you read her work more carefully, you see a very different kind of Wolf there. But in general, connections between them are that they're both suspicious of authorial ego and want to exorcise their personalities from their writing. They both pay attention to the reality of the other, which is Murdoch's main manifesto, and they both have an emphasis on contingency and the present moment, and increasingly now, both are being seen as spiritual and mystical writers, despite their atheism. There's an excellent study by Donna Lazenby of transcendence and imminence in the works of Wolf and Murdoch, which traces this through. It's quite a difficult book, but it's well worth reading. Now, specifically, they both wanted to decenter the novel, to get the randomness and contingency of life in, by including nameless characters whose actions are mysterious and inexplicable, both to the characters within the novels who encounter them and to the readers to whom they're just presented without any explanation. To take an example from Virginia Woolf, there's the singing woman in Jacob's room, and an example from Murdoch would be the hysterical weeping woman in the coffin-like lavatory who unnerves Harvey in The Green Knight. We don't know why one woman is singing, nor why the other woman is weeping. So each writer extends the range of her novel by bringing in these characters who strike the narrative obliquely at a tangent to the main action of the story. But the biggest way in which they tried to descend to the novel was the removal of the central character through death. And here I'm looking at The Waves and The Book of the Brotherhood. Percival in The Waves died young. He died because his horse tripped, he was thrown 
total accident. Sinclair Kirtland in the book of the Brotherhood died young again when his glider crashed into a hillside, total accident again. And these two novels are about death and grief. Wolf crystallized her grief for her parents into the lighthouse and for her brother Toby who died young in Jacob's room and the waves. And Murdoch had terrible grief for Frank Thompson killed in Bulgaria in 1944 and Franz Steiner who also died young, a, a victim of Hitler indirectly. So they're both looking, taking out the central character and then looking at the effect upon the people who are left in the lives of that loss. And the Book of the Brotherhood was published in 1987, five years after that conference in Cambridge, when Murdoch had deliberately, as a mature writer herself, reread Wolf. And I think she's come to terms with her because her novel, The Book of the Brotherhood, pays tribute to Wolf's with extreme literary subtlety. She talks about Sinclair, Rose's brother, the golden boy, so long dead. And he performs a double function because he does evoke the lost men in Murdoch's own life, Frank and Franz. But through the mourning of Rose for Sinclair, Murdoch fictionalizes Wolf's grief for her brother Toby. And they both, both these books convey the irre irrevocability of loss and the continual omnipresence of grief. All the characters are very loosely lent, linked and the unifying strength of grief is what holds them together. Percival and Sinclair are both the silent young man whose death stands at the center of the narrative, as one wolf critic remarked. And there's a danger in dying young, full of unrealized potential. Toby Stephen and Frank Thompson become stuck at that stage in their lives in the memories of those who love them. And there's a symbolic importance of the idea of Percival in the survivors' lives. In the waves, Wolf writes, this globe whose walls are made of Percival, of youth and beauty, and something so sunk so deep within us that we shall perhaps never make this moment out of one man again. He's unrealized at that point, he's become something symbolic. And the youth and beauty of Sinclair likewise have a symbolic import for the others in the book on the Brotherhood, which doesn't engage with what he actually was and what he would have become. Rose wistfully recalling those happy, free, as it seemed virtuous days when Sinclair was at Oxford, thinks it had all depended on Sinclair if he had only lived. And then of course she realizes he, he might have lived to become a complete wastrel. He, he might not have stayed so golden, but they get frozen in this moment in time. And by the time that they wrote these novels, Wolf and Murdoch were both mature and accomplished artists and their presentation of the dead is very self-aware and touched with both pity and irony, I think. Murdoch deliberately weaves into textuality between her novel and Wolf's and subtly draws the reader's attention to it. During the reading party at Boyer's, Murdoch slips Wolf's name into the narrative. A small octagonal table near the window supported books, novels by Lawrence and Virginia Wolf, chosen by Rose for Lily. And she makes a link with the literary history of Bloomsbury. The book is being written by a man called David Crimmond and the other characters inspired by Sinclair, which is why they can't give it up later, make a Crimmond Gesellschaft of money for him to be able to write instead of having to work, which is echoing, pointing to, or even perhaps parodying the Elliott Fellowship Fund, a scheme by which in 1922, Virginia Woolf and others attempted to free T.S. Eliot from needing to work as a banker. And such intertextual connections indicate that by this late stage in her novel writing career, Murdoch has lost her earlier anxiety about Woolf's influence and is prepared covertly to acknowledge it with a wink to the attentive reader. And there's a tiny detail that I think really affirms this, because Murdoch's sentence, Sinclair's glider crashed into a hillside in Sussex, 
not only echoes the verb in Wolf's sentence, into this crushed death, Percival's, but her choice of Sussex, the county of Monk's house in Charleston, the two homes linked most closely with Wolf's immediate circle and the site of Wolf's own death, seems a quiet owning by murder of homage due to her great predecessor. So her stance towards Wolf has undergone a major shift since the sly sideways dig in A Severed Head, written in 1961, where the vain and foolish Antonia Lynch Gibbons' mother came out of the Bloomsbury world, was something of a poet and a remote relation of Virginia Woolf. So I think it's finally become bearable to acknowledge her own belated status and Woolf's prodigious role in the history of the novel. But like all the philosophers, painters and novelists who appear in her novels, Woolf was included just as part of Murdoch's cultural milieu in an instinctive, playful way. And her sensitivity to her literary forebear is only disclosed in hints and fragments. And I was interested to conclude um, briefly that four years before the publication of the book of the Brotherhood, Murdoch was asked by Peter Conradi about her early reference to Wolf in a severed head. She'd forgotten doing so, saying with laughter, did I actually mention Virginia Woolf? How extraordinary. And then remarking, of course, any mention of Virginia Woolf is fatal because it sets off a lot of thought processes, as it were. And I wonder whether those thought processes were set off to become this, this paralleling in the book of the Brotherhood of the Waves and this acknowledgement of Wolf. But that's my thesis. So, <laughs> no, Thank <laughs> so you, Francis. That's, that's fascinating. I, I think for me, I've, oddly enough, I'm actually rereading the book of the Brotherhood at the moment. I find it quite a difficult book to think about because of the amount of character, the amount of detail, the, the the time that Murdoch spends. It's not a it's not like like one of the early novels where you can it, it rattles along um with the plot. There's a, there's a lot of ref, there's a lot of reflection. And we see that in the waves as well, don't we? Um this well, as well as in Jacob's room, but certainly in the waves, this the, the way in which ref, reflection and and the sort of recognition of the past is brought back most fully. So I think that's what that, those those connections are the so useful to to think about and maybe indeed will help in particularly for me but maybe for others as well for um, reading the book on the brotherhood which I, I know isn't everybody's favorite but i think it does replay uh replay rereading so thank you uh jillian um let, let's circle back to you because i'm, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on and on what um jan and indeed what francis have been saying as well yes i i i found um I mean, there's the, there's the quote uh, from 1976 when she was talking to uh, Sheila Hale um, in in the collection Women Writers Now, um, and uh, she said um, Murdoch said the greatest writers have an evasive tone; they are open to the world. There is a largeness of vision which is lacking in most contemporary fiction a freedom which allows characters to grow and develop independently of point of view and structure. Without this freedom, there can be no great fictional characters. Jane Austen had it, even though her world was so restricted. I haven't got it. Too obsessive about plot, she mm. wrote. So, um, so this was, that was her own sort of in 1976 when, you know, she was writing fabulous, wonderful novels that we all love. Um, the Sacred Fane Love Machine was around about then, wasn't it? And, and um, you know, The Black Prince wasn't much, much earlier um, and Fairly Honourable Defeat. Um, and this feeling that she was too obsessive about plot, um, I, I, I think 
might have you know might have been a, a sort of it's a modesty isn't it i mean it does it there's there's one way of looking at it there's this sort of um feeling that perhaps she wasn't as great as them and therefore she couldn't you know she was kind of constrained by trying to be as great as them but then there's another side of it which is well look you know we we just keep trying and i think that's what that, that's more what what she did you know she mm. because she didn't you know she often said that she didn't sort of she moved on from each novel why why would you keep writing unless to try and make write a better novel next time i think she was you know she she said that somewhere too maybe to frank commode yeah. you know so i think that 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 um, humility was was also part of her strength she is very self-deprecating. She said that about Jane Austen, but she also says in one of the interviews, I'm not sure which one it is, I'm in the second league of writers and George Eliot is in the first league. She is hyper-serious. And she obviously saw herself as frivolous compared with Eliot. But does she also mean that this question about seriousness um, that, that Eliot has is, is actually uh, detrimental to thinking about the, the, the essential comedic nature of the novel? She found Elliot funny as well, though. She did say when she'd just finished reading Middlemarch, she'd forgotten how funny it is. She says that about Dostoevsky, too. Mm. When you go back to them, you see how funny they are. And I'd say it's not something you'd ever say about Wolf, I don't think, much as I love her. Jan, do you want to come in on that? Uh, well, just to, uh, I suppose, um, a, a thought about the influence of George Eliot on Iris Murdoch might be as much about the um the thinking and moral processes um as about the 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 fiction because um daniel deronda is the the, the novel which seems to really intrigue uh murdoch it seems to have made a, a a deep impression on her in terms of gwendolyn the the heroine's um dilemma and uh, when she has to try and save the life of her the husband she hates um and she uses that as an example of moral decision making in her theoretical essays so it's, it seems to me a very interesting example of murdoch the philosopher using fiction to explore moral ideas um almost like um, seeing a novel as a laboratory for exploring moral concepts, like in that, that case, freedom of, of will or uh, weakness of will um, uh, and intention, which of course was the, the, the Elizabeth Anscombe's uh, great uh, monograph in which that, that philosophical conundrum of what does intention mean mm. and of course Eliot herself was deeply invested in in German philosophy in Spinoza and Feuerbach as well well she which... translated both she translated Feuerbach and Strauss from German she translated Spinoza from Latin um she was like like Murdoch um uh, 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 and and Jane Austen um knew the classics well and she she knew uh, many languages i think george Eliot and murdoch were both scholars in the way that 
Jane Austen didn't have the opportunity to be. You pointed me, Jan, back to Wolfe's essay on George Eliot. Yes, it's, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful, balanced, yeah. generous appraisal. And when you go to the common reader and you see how much she read mm. and how oh, easily yeah. she encapsulates a writer, they're all exceptionally intelligent. Yes. yes. And yeah. very, very learned within their scope of, of when, the, when they were born, obviously, and what they had yeah. access to. And obviously for Jane Austen, that was limited compared yes. to yes. Iris Murdoch. But they made the most of everything yes. they, they learned and they read. What what Eliot and um, Virginia Woolf have in common in terms of their access to knowledge and learning is that they both had access to great libraries because yeah. Virginia Woolf had, although not formal education, had access to Leslie Stephen, her father's great library. Yeah. And George Eliot, um, her father was the estate manager for Arbury Hall, um, at the great sort of um, estate that, that nearby where they lived. Um, she was given free reign to explore the library there, partly because it was thought she wasn't very attractive. She wasn't likely to make a good marriage, so she might as well um, be educated. And and so there was an, an autodidacticism about both of them, um, which, of course, was not the case in Murdoch, who, who was very much um, the product of a very formal and very rich um, Teaching well, yes, she was obviously because she was at badminton and then at Oxford. But then, mm. when she'd left Oxford, she by herself sought out all the continental writers, the novelists, the philosophers yes. of the continent that were not known. It's why hers is the first book on Sartre because she pushed beyond the boundaries of what the sort of syllabus was set down for her education in the same kind of way, just always pushing outwards to find out more. And I think it's in the Sartre book where she talks about um, Northanger Abbey. Is that where she quotes um, the the um, what are you reading? Oh, it's only a novel. And then no, it's not. Where is that? Um, where that's is in Nuns and Soldiers, I think. Yes, but it, it she quotes it elsewhere as well. I thought. I thought anyway. It, it's it's interesting that that she does use that reference to Jane Austen, if you like, classifying the value of. Mm. Yeah, the novel very very early on, which um, and I'm not I'm not saying Jane Austen wasn't wasn't scholarly. She, she was well read. She she obviously. Um, I think we should bring should we bring Gillian in on that? Yes, yes. I'm going to ask him what, how you would not defend her, but <laughs> um, yeah. That well, I mean, in the matter of access, um, mm. it's a little bit hard to know. But she certainly, uh, you know, in her in her more adult years, she had access to her brother's library, oh. uh, at, at at Godmersham and, and Chawton. Um, but and um, you know, there were obviously books in the in the Steventon parsonage where she was where she was brought up um, because her father was a, a scholarly man and and you know was a taught. Uh, was a, a teacher as well as a a, a minister um so um but but we, we you know we're not quite sure exactly what she what what she wrote but that you know there's a there's enough for a book uh, a recent book by Olivia Murphy called Jane Austen the reader mm. um which uh, sort of picks up what she what she did what mm. she did read um it's not a lot of Real classical, sort of the the sort of heavy duty classical 
um, influences, um, mm. but you know, the, the, the 18th century, of course, mm. you yeah. know, Johnson and, and Richardson and Fielding and all that, yeah. you know, she yeah. knew and, and yeah. of course, contemporaries. Um, yeah, so that's... It's um, the fire, sorry, it's the fire and the sun, isn't it, where um, Murdoch quotes the Northanger Abbey. You um, may well be right, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah I think it's fire and the sun. Um, yeah, uh, could I ask uh, uh, Francis a question about um, Virginia Woolf and John Bailey? Surely. Because, Francis, you referred to the conference where Iris Murdoch and John Bailey, um, they were invited, weren't they, to the Virginia Woolf Centenary Conference in Cambridge. And, and um, Iris appeared on the panel, but John gave a paper, John Bailey gave a paper. I'd love <laughs> to see that. I wonder what he said, because he's so dismissive of her. Well, essentially, he made a claim for The Voyage Out, which is Virginia Woolf's first mm. apprentice novel, to be her greatest achievement and by far the best novel. And you have to believe <laughs> that tongue-in-cheek. Um, and and uh, when, uh, afterwards, when I think that when she writes to Bridget Brophy, Murdoch says, you know, they went to this conference and um, she said, we were surrounded by enthusiasts. We had to keep our heads down. Yes. But then when she's on the panel, she um, is asked what, um, what they reach out of the panel, which fair enough. It, she had Hermione Lee and I think Gillian Beer, two great sort of wolf scholars that she was, you know, sitting next to. And they said, what's the greatest wolf novel? And they, I get what they said, but but she sort of says, nobody seems to be mentioning the voyage out. And you think, how far is her her reading of wolf? being mediated through John's sort of dismissiveness. Enormously so, I Is think. Yes. I really do. Yes. I think he yes. had um, a huge influence in her thinking. I think also he, he dismissed the idea of God. And she said to somebody yes. at one point, John, uh, John got rid of God for me. Mm. And she's wistful about that. And she ends metaphysics with a psalm. And she's never really comfortable with this. Uh, John was just a natural atheist and a natural wolf yes. hater, I think. Yes. And I think without yes. him, she might have had a more nuanced look. And I think yes. you do see that, that quietly she's thinking about it during those five years after the conference, before she publishes the book of the Brotherhood. And it's not the voyage out that she goes to. It is the much more wolfian um ch novel changing novel the waves you know the, the changing the yes. shape of the novel yeah and she's interested yes. in fact despite john in how you do decenter and how you do have yes. equal whereas the voyage out it's 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 a great first novel but it is yes. it's a traditional story told in yes. a traditional fashion yes and yes. i don't think john yes. liked it when they when she broke away and fragmented everything and mm stopped telling stories this, this movement away way. from realism which perhaps yeah. is why yeah. murdoch leans much more heavily on austin and elliot than she does yeah. early on in wolf yes yeah she said about mrs ramsey that there was a bit too much luminosity base and and not enough stuff in 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 the in to the light and mrs ramsey which seems a bit uh, harsh but uh, in the Sartre book, she quotes Wolf's um, sentence, life is a luminous halo, mm. a semi-transparent envelope that surrounds us from the beginning of consciousness to the end. And then she says, the flux whose grey undulations afflicted the hero of La, La Nose by Sartre, which is what she's writing about, 
with metaphysical torment is rose-colored in Mrs. Wolfe's work. And she also makes an attack on the heroine of that lyric upon the absurdity of everything, Mrs. Dalloway, which she thinks has a lack of moral dimension, which is a damning indictment. And I think would be very differently read now. I don't think that's yeah. true. But she does, she goes into the attack on Wolf in Sartre, which is, you know, before Bailey had an influence. So there was something yeah, there yeah. before him. Yeah, fair and enough. Was, yeah. He reinforced that. So, uh, but I, yeah. I think she was slipping away from his influence by the time she wrote the book of the Brotherhood. Julian, what do we make of this, um, Jennifer perceived sort of Austinian influence on unofficial Rose? I mean, I, I mentioned at the, the very beginning, um, of the uh, this, the reviewer in the bookman saying that um, an unofficial rose owes much to Austin. I wonder if there's anything that we can draw out from that, or indeed anybody else on, on the uh, on, on the podcast. Yes, I, I, I think that you know certainly the uh, yeah. I, I'm trying to think um, oh, if, if there's anything more sort of direct than the than the diffuse. I mean, I know there are there are there are the sort of refer the the direct references where a character is reading reading Austen or and and you can you should must always take note of those <clears throat> those things. Um, but that the sort of what what um, that thing about thinginess, mm. um, you know, there's not a lot of thinginess in Austen. It's not mm. you know it's really quite striking when she when fanny is sitting in the in the in the sitting room in in um in, in her portsmouth her, her parents house and and you know you see the, the the greasy butter and the and the milk that's gone off and you know that that sort of that um that sort of level of <clears throat> um observation of the surroundings um, is is actually quite striking when it happens in Austin because it's it's so unusual. Whereas in Murdoch, it's it's she you know she's she's always very aware of the the environment, the surroundings, um, the the of her characters and the settings and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, so so you know if if. If Wolf didn't have enough thinginess, well, you know, but but somehow Austin was let off having having <laughs> <I'm not> sure. <laughs> and Elliot had plenty of thinginess. So. Yes, <laughs> stuff, plenty of stuff. <laughs> what do we make, if anything, of the fact that um, oh, give me his name back. The dreadful psychiatrist in the sacred and profane love machine, Blaze, Blaze Gavender. Blaze Gavender. Has read the whole of um, Jane Austen to his wife and son, and yet it's just such a total dastardly reprobate. It's as if reading Jane Austen's mm. had no effect on him whatsoever. Is it a comment on that um, poetry or indeed art makes nothing happen? <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> Maybe it's maybe it's a like um, a reference to the the, the Sir Edward um, um, Denham, isn't it? In in Sanderton, who's uh, who who's read uh, who who's, who who admires all the all the villains, and you know wants to emulate them, you know, rather than um, so you know you can you can read there. There's there's as many novels by Jane Austen as there are readers in a way that you can take uh, you can take all sorts of things I mean I met someone on 
at a conference last week whose hero was Mary Crawford and who said Ed, Edward Bertram was a, a bully. And I, I was sort of, <laughs> I was just astonished by that. Um, so I, I, you know, I think, and and he's an academic reader, and you know, to, it, that's his his um, considered opinion. Uh, but um, yeah, so so there's so much in these novels that there's so much for people to take away um, that may not have been what the the author was hoping they'd take away. Well, as we come towards the end of the uh, the podcast, and our time together, um, what I think I um. I usually do. I, I, I ask you, um, my, my guests, to recommend something to read. Um, I think perhaps it's a little bit um, more tricky this time because it'd be you know read and read a novel by one of these great authors and then then read a comparison by by Murdoch. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a, a link to um, my guests' uh, work in the description box so you can have a look at that. But let, let's go round and gather some final thoughts, shall we? Um, which would be uh, useful, I think, um, thinking about um, this this idea of female lineage and, and Murdoch, and perhaps where we where we might want to go with it. Um, Jan, can we can we start with you? Um, I, I, can I just um, finish off then, just because I've located that um, fire in the sun. Yes, please location. do. Yeah, it just seems to me to encapsulate um, how Murdoch saw the value of the novel and thereby the value of the work of all the people we've been talking about. She says, hear the words of Jane Austen, Northanger Abbey, chapter five. And what are you reading, miss? Oh, it's only a novel, replies the young lady, while she lays down her book with affected indifference or momentary shame. It's only Cecilia or Camilla or Belinda, or in short, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest diffusion of wit and humour are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. Those are Jane Austen's words, and I think Murdoch clearly echoed them. John and Iris chose to read that out at Tulane as well as- Did the, they? So Did as, they? Yes, as well yes. as the piece I was talking about for Persuasion. He read that, he found and read right. that whole chunk again. It yes. was obviously of deep significance to both of them. So, and it, it, in a way, it, it, it links all those writers mm. together doesn't it beautifully yeah it does yeah. indeed thank you jan Gillian, your final thoughts well i i just um, want to you know endorse what jan's just said and thank her for for finding that quote because um you know finding where that quote was because it's um you know it does bring it full circle so beautifully mm. and, and i'm not in my own library which is the, the other on the other side of the world at the moment so um, I, I can't sort of bring these things up as easily. Um, yes, I, you know, I, I just think that that, as Francis said, it was an it, it was a Jane Austen was just sort of so much part of Murdoch's um, consciousness idea ideal of what the novel was and could be um, that it's almost impossible to kind of pick out. Well, it's it's extremely possible. To draw uh, draw comparisons and um, and uh, find references and influences, but it's, mm. it's very hard to sort of say. Well, here is a place where Jane Austen mm. influenced Iris Murdoch, sort of and, and isolate it. 
So I think it was just a, a diff, diffuse and and um, you know omni om, omni uh, omnipresent. That's the word. <laughs> omnipresent mm. um, influence. We've got to go back to the six major works and uh, and then think about Murdoch in relationship to them, perhaps. So some some work to do for people over the summer. Thank you. And Francis, your thoughts. I was just remembering that Wendy Vesey, in an essay on Murdoch and John Banville's book, The Sea, makes a sort of throwaway comment at one point about how alike the opening paragraph of The Waves is to the opening paragraph of The Sea, The Sea. And I haven't managed to follow that up yet, but that would be fascinating. But I think what I really want to urge people to do is the book on the Brotherhood is a neglected Murdoch novel. And it's a really, really rich one. It's one of my favourites. It would be in my top five Murdochs. And I would urge people to um, to try that one. It's um, it's a long, slow read. Like it's a big baggy monster. It's like reading Henry James or whatever, but it's, it's well worth the effort. And it's a wonderful book. And All of Wolf, which is very short. <laughs> yes, this is true. Yeah, I think for for me it's um, reminiscent of um, James's Wings of Dove in the terms of how uh, the 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 slowness of the build up and the development of characterization is um, yeah for me, for me that would be a, a comparison. But yeah, I think that in, interesting as you said, the comparison between Waves and the Book of the Brotherhood is something that um, I'm going to take away and, and and think about. So um, thank you, thank you very much. My my thanks to uh, to Julian Dooley, to uh, to Jan Skinner, and to Francis White, and my thanks to you all for listening.